early days of telescopic astronomy were accelerating. Listen to this uh, anecdote by Kepler. He's writing in 1610, right after the appearance of Galileo's first uh, telescope uh, reports. Here's what Kepler says. My friend, the Baron Wacker von Wachenfels, drew up to my door and started shouting excitedly from his carriage. Is it true? Is it really true that he has found stars moving around stars? And I told him that it was indeed so, and only then did he enter the house. So, yeah, those were the good old days, right? People uh, shouting in the streets in excitement over scientific discoveries. Stars moving around stars, as the quote says, and that means uh, moons moving around planets, as we would say today, uh, the moons of Jupiter, in fact. And uh, he who has discovered such things, that's Galileo. So it's a big deal, stars moving around stars, uh, because it proves that uh, there are several centers of motion in the universe. Not everything revolves around the Earth. The Earth is not the midpoint of every motion, as the old uh, geocentric vision of the cosmos would have it. Of course, in the heliocentric system of Copernicus, there are already different centers of motion, because uh, the moon goes around the Earth while the planets go around the Sun. So if you wanted to stick to the old view, you could try to argue that it made more sense for everything to have one center, for whatever metaphysical reason you could come up with or, or something. But now that there are moons of Jupiter, well, that ruins that argument, doesn't it? Multiple centers of motion are a fact. This can no longer be used as an argument against Copernicus. So that's all very important and exciting. What exactly was Galileo's role in this so it seems that Galileo was indeed the first to observe the moons of Jupiter, but only by the smallest possible margin. His competitor, Simon Marius, observed them the very next day, for example. In any case, uh, one hardly qualifies as the father of modern science just by looking. Nor does Galileo's account stand out for its scientific excellence. For instance, he tries to correct Marius regarding the inclination of the orbit of the moon to Jupiter, uh, Marius found that the orbits of the moon, they sit at an angle to the orbital plane of Jupiter itself. Galileo claimed, no, no, they are actually perfectly parallel to uh, Jupiter's own orbit. That Galileo is wrong and his opponent is right. As so often happens in such matters, you know, Galileo, he has no patience for painstaking observations. He oversimplifies, he relies on rhetorical points. He's more interested in writing polemics, claiming credit, uh, proving others wrong, and he doesn't have so much time for actual science. And Galileo also tried to do mathematics in the moons of Jupiter, and he failed at that too. Amazingly, Galileo's first calculations of the orbital periods of Jupiter's moons were geocentric and not heliocentric. Galileo was treating Jupiter uh, as if it revolved around the Earth, and not the Sun. How he ever came to make such an error is an interesting question, says one historian. Well, yes, it's interesting indeed, isn't it? And we know the answer, don't we? Galileo couldn't calculate himself out of a paper bag, so no wonder he makes these kinds of mistakes. Kepler, meanwhile, of course, he understood the matter perfectly and realized at once that you need a heliocentric calculation for this stuff to work, and the fact that the calculations only work this way is in fact another good argument against the geocentric system. One Galileo supporter offers a very charitable interpretation of why Galileo didn't see this. He writes as follows, This throws in doubt the view that by 1611 
Galileo was already a Copernican zealot, anxious to find every possible argument for the Earth's motion. Uh, right, so that's the argument. But So Galileo didn't use the heliocentric calculations because he was so open-minded, you see. Well, that makes no sense, of course. Galileo was most definitely a zealot. A more plausible explanation, in my opinion, is that it was not lack of desire to prove the Earth's motion that made Galileo miss the point. It was lack of ability in mathematical astronomy sufficient to be able to make that argument. But anyway, uh, let's change the subject now and look at uh, another important novelty discovered when astronomers first uh, turned telescopes to the heavens. Sunspots. The sun, the image of brilliance and clarity, it turns out to have black spots on it when you study it under the telescope. Filth on the cheeks of the sun, as one contemporary called it. Uh, and another was equally disturbed and asked, who does not blush that we see the sun occasionally disfigured? Indeed, and in Latin there is this saying, adversus solum ne loquitur, so do not speak against the sun, that is, do not argue against what is the clearest and most perfect thing imaginable, something like that. So how disturbing then that the time had come to in fact argue against the sun. Uh, nothing is uh, sacred as science advances, you know. The earliest recorded telescopic observations of sunspots are by Thomas Harriot, before Galileo. And soon many more astronomers across Europe uh, joined in this craze. And of course it is dangerous to stare at the sun, and all the more so through a telescope. And indeed some people neglected to observe the sunspot, being afraid that the image might burn my eye, as one contemporary put it. But others figured that, well, God had given them two eyes for a reason, and they burned them alternately in the name of science. As Harriet, for example, saw the sun twice or thrice, once with the right eye and the other time with the left, before the sun was too clear. So this is the kind of sacrifice that people made. And soon, however, a method was developed for projecting the telescopic image of the sun onto a piece of paper, so that no burning of the eyes was needed. Well, that's convenient enough. But even without this trick, there would have been no shortage of martyrs of science willing to pay with their eyes for wisdom. Now, Galileo insisted to his dying day that he was the first to have seen sunspots. In reality, he was probably preceded by others, including also not only Harriet, but the Dutch astronomer uh, Johan Fabricius, who was the first to publish about sunspots uh, to boost his priority case, uh, Galileo later claimed that he had seen sunspots already in 1610 rather than in 1611 as documented. This is almost certainly a lie, as even Galileo's own supporters admit nowadays. And furthermore, already in antiquity there are some allusions to sunspots. It is not impossible to see large sunspots without a telescope, so... Well, in any case, the game was now on to explain the nature of the sunspots. Galileo's main competitor on this point was Christoph Scheiner, a German astronomer. Scheiner was concerned to liberate the sun's body entirely from the insult of spots, as he said. For who would dare call the sun false? He found a, a way of accomplishing this by arguing that the sunspot were many miniature moons rather than blemishes on the sun itself. So perfection was restored in this way. Now Galileo, on the other hand, eagerly embraced sunspots as an opportunity to stick it to his 
as Zilin enemies. For this novelty appears to be the final judgment of their philosophy, as he said. Thus Galileo placed the spots uh, on the sun itself. So he argued that they were clouds about the sun. That's the most plausible explanation. One would find not find anything known to us that resembles them more. This was his take. It is true that sunspots are indeed on the surface of the sun. This is a conclusion, incidentally, which uh, Kepler had already reached before reading Galileo, for instance. However, sunspots are not clouds about the surface of the sun, as Galileo believed. Rather, they are dark uh, pits or depressions in the solar surface itself. Uh, Shiner entertained the possibility of this hypothesis, while Galileo resolutely discarded it as unworthy of serious consideration, as one historian explains. Oh well, that's Galileo for you. So Galileo, he loved claiming new discoveries as his own, using them in, as ammunition in his philosophical disputes, but he soon lost interest when he came to the detailed work of actual science. Again and again he makes careless errors, jumps to conclusions with premature confidence, while his competitor, Shiner and, and, and others, they do the meticulous observational work that Galileo had no patience for. For instance, Galileo erroneously claimed, supposedly based on a great number of most diligent observations of this particular, in his own word, he claimed that all sunspots had the same orbital period, regardless of uh, latitude. In fact, sunspots near the sun's equator orbit uh, quicker than those near the poles. It's a difference of a few days. So Galileo was corrected uh, by Shiner about this. And Galileo also did not miss the opportunity to make some mathematical errors, as usual. They tried to compute the perspective aspect of the sunspot's motion. How does their apparent speed along the sun's disk vary, given that their actual direction of motion turns more away from us the closer they get to the edge? Well, Galileo's attempted demonstration covers three pages and contains at least as many errors. So it's just basic geometry mistakes, you know. Anyway, let's turn to the most important thing about sunspots, namely that they can be used as evidence that the Earth moves around the Sun. In his dialogue, Galileo considered this one of his three best arguments in favor of Copernicus. And here's what he says. The Sun has shown itself unwilling to stand alone in evading the confirmation of so important a conclusion, that is, the conclusion that the Earth orbits the Sun. And instead, the Sun wants to be the greatest witness of all to this. So that is uh, how Galileo interprets this state of affairs. Uh, we will see if his arguments are any good. They go as follows. Imagine a standard uh, globe, like the glo globe of the Earth, and uh, you put it on a table. Its axis is a bit tilted, of course. The North Pole is not pointing straight up, you know. It's off to the side a little bit. So you have a seat at one side of this table, and you face the globe. Now, what do you see? Focus on the equator of the globe. What kind of shape is it? If the North Pole is facing in your direction, the axis is tilted toward you, then the equator will make a kind of happy mouth or U shape, like the letter U. Or, on the other hand, if you sit on the opposite side of the table, where you see mostly the southern hemisphere, then the equator is instead a sad mouth, so to speak, an upside-down U. And uh, if you, in, in between these two positions, on, on, the, on the sides, the equator looks like a diagonal line. 
And now, let's suppose that the sun has its equator marked on it. And suppose that in the course of a year, we would see it as alternating between these different impressions, the happy mouth, the straight diagonal, and then the sad mouth, and then the diagonal again, and so on. So that would correspond exactly to us moving around the table, looking at the stationary globe from different vantage points. In, in the same way, if the sun's equator exhibited uh, those appearances, the most natural explanation would be that the Earth is moving around it. We are looking at its equator slightly from above, slightly from the, from, from the side, from below, etc. Uh, just like we're looking at the globe from different sides of the table. So, of course, the sun does not, in fact, have its equator conveniently marked on its surface, but actually not far from it. The sun is spinning rather quickly. It makes a full turn in less than a month around its axis. And as it spins, a point on the surface traces out an equatorial uh, circle, or at least a latitude circle parallel to the equator. So, by tracking the paths of sunspots over the course of a few uh, weeks, we, in effect, see equatorial and latitude circles being marked on the surface of the sun. So we can infer, you know, the tilt of the sun's axis and so on. This information comes to us from the sunspots. Uh, so the shapes of those paths traced by sunspots, they show that we are indeed looking at the sun from alternating vantage points. Uh, sometimes a little bit from... Uh, kind of looking at the North Pole, something looking more at the South Pole, and, and so on. Uh, this does not necessarily mean, however, that we are moving around the Sun. The same phenomena could be accounted for from a geostatic or Ptolemaic point of view by saying that, well, uh, the Sun is, so to speak, wobbling. It is showing us different sides of itself in the course of a year, not because we are moving around it, but because it is turning different parts of itself uh, in our direction. You can see the same thing with uh, your globe on this table over there. Instead of moving around the table, looking at the globe from different sides, you can have a friend grab the, the globe and tilt it a little bit, pointing its axis now this way, now that way. And uh, if you let the axis spin around in a kind of a conical motion, this will produce the exact same visual impressions for you as if you had moved around, around the table. Therefore, uh, in order to use the sunspot paths as evidence for uh, Copernican theory, as evidence that the Earth moves around the Sun, it is necessary for Galileo to dismiss this alternative explanation, this idea of the Sun's axis wobbling about. And he did so by attacking it as physically implausible. To account for the sunspot phenomena from a Ptolemaic point of view with this wobbling stuff, then the Sun had to first orbit the Earth, then spin on its own axis, and furthermore, also have its axis wobble in a conical motion. These diverse motions, as Galilei, are so incongruous with each other, and yet necessarily all attributable to the same single body of the Sun. Surely that is a geometrical fiction that would never happen in, in, in actual physical bodies, argues Galileo, that these completely these three separate motions somehow uh, in, they uh, function in the same body and somehow not interfering with one another. Actually, such an incongruous combination of motions is not only possible, but a plain fact. The Earth, in fact, has exactly such a combination of motions. This had been known since Copernicus. The Earth has a conical wobbling motion. So the North Pole is indeed pointing to a slightly different spot among the stars from year to year. 
and it circles back to its original spot after about 26,000 years. This is the explanation for the so-called precision of the equinoxes, an important uh, technical aspect of classical astronomy. In fact, if Galileo's argument about incongruous motions disproves Ptolemaic explanation of sunspots, then it also disproves Copernicus' correct explanation of the precession of the equinoxes. So Galileo, he conveniently neglects to bring up this rather obvious problem with his argument. Whether he did so out of ignorance or dishonesty is difficult to say. But either way, uh, well, it's not too flattering, obviously. Any serious mathematical astronomer was well acquainted with the precession of the equinoxes and, of course, considers an essential requirement that any serious astronomical system must account for this phenomenon. Galileo, however, is not really a serious mathematical astronomer, is he? He was a simplistic uh, popularizer, simply ignored technical aspects like that, and it is only because of this oversimplification that he is able to maintain his argument against the Ptolemaic interpretation of sunspots, to reject the three motions of the, of the sun, when in fact, if he was serious about it, he would have to attribute exactly three motions of the very same nature uh, to the Earth. So it couldn't possibly be physically implausible. Or if you like, here's another way that we can counter Galileo's argument. Is it in fact really necessary at all to say that the sun's axis is wobbling in the geometric explanation of sunspot? Well, yes and no. It depends on what you mean when you say that one body orbits another. You can picture this with the globe on the table that we considered before. Let's say you climb onto the table and you go sit in the middle of the table. Now you grab the globe and you make it orbit around you. So you're simulating the hypothesis that the Earth is moving around the Sun, let's say, and you're the Sun and you're moving the Earth, uh, the globe around you. How exactly do you move that Earth? In what way? So this will turn out to be more subtle than you might think. Uh, yeah, you, you move the globe in a big circle around you. What's the problem, right? Oh, well, it's a big problem, actually. So let's say that you start out, picture it like this, with the globe in front of you, with the North Pole pointing slightly away from you. So you remember the axis, of course, is not purely vertical. It's at some kind of angle. So let's say it's, uh, that's away from you. So you're seeing mostly Australia, more than Siberia, you know, stuff like that. So now you grab the globe and move it in a circular orbit around you. Imagine doing this physically, just picture it in your mind. Uh, what happens to the axis of the Earth uh, as it undergoes this motion? Is the axis of the Earth still pointing the same way? So when you've gone halfway around, for example, so the Earth is behind you now, is the axis pointing toward you? Or is it still pointing away from you? Actually, both are quite reasonable ways of conceiving orbital motion. And we can put it the following way. Suppose you're not actually touching the globe at all. Instead, the globe is standing on a big sheet of paper that covers the entire table. If you want to simulate the orbital motion of the globe around the midpoint of the table, how do you move the paper? There are two ways. You can spin the paper around the midpoint, like a roulette wheel. So the midpoint of the paper where you're sitting, the, that remains fixed, and everything else is spinning around it. You, let's think about what this means for the axis of the globe. If this is how the globe is moved, the axis will keep pointing away from you throughout the entire motion. 
if the North Pole is pointing away or outwards to begin with, then it will keep pointing outwards in all the other positions along the orbit as well, right? But then there's a second way you can move the paper. You can slide the entire paper around without keeping the midpoint uh, fixed. Or think of the way you wipe the table with a disc dishcloth. You put your hand, palm down on the table, and you make circles. Right? You can move the paper that way. Then the globe it will go in a circle. But if you do it this way, the, the way, the way the axis of the globe uh, behaves is completely different. If you slide the paper around this way, the axis keeps pointing toward the same end of the room, not to the same direction relative to the midpoint of the table as before. So now, if you do it this way, when you completed half the orbit from half the orbit, then the uh, North Pole is pointing toward you, toward the midpoint of the table, unlike before when it was always pointing away from you. So those are the two options. What does it mean for a globe to orbit a certain central point? Does it mean that the axis is always pointing the same way with respect to the central point as the roulette wheel scenario? Or does it mean that the axis is always pointing the same way with respect to the walls of the room? And that's the dishcloth uh, case. So how does this go with the sunspots then? Well, Galileo's argument that I discussed above, it assumes that orbital motion is in fact roulette wheel motion and not dishcloth motion, so to speak. If we put the globe on a roulette wheel and we spin it around, it will always show us the same part of itself. So you wouldn't see that uh, alteration between sad mouth, happy mouth and so on. That happens when you're looking at the equator from above, from below in alternation. And instead, you would just see, for example, the sad mouth equator or whatever, all the time. Uh, but the sunspots, they show that we do see the equator from different angles. So if we assume that the sun is orbiting the Earth, and that orbiting means something like the roulette wheel type of motion, then yes, we must indeed attribute one more motion to the sun, the wobbling of the axis, in addition to the orbital motion. And this is what Galileo attacks, the multitude of different motions needed. This is what we already refuted Galileo's argument about that, with the precession of the equinoxes that relates to that point. However, if we are prepared to say that orbital motion means dishcloth-style motion, then Galileo's objection goes away, because in this case, the sun will indeed show us happy and sad mouths automatically, without the need for any additional motion. Already the orbital motion itself leads to it showing different phases in our direction. It doesn't need to wobble on its axis. So, well, in that case, if we allow that, we make refuting Galileo even easier. So, in fact, from a modern point of view, dishcloth motion is a good way to think about orbital motions. If you imagine that the seasons, the spring, summer, winters of the Earth, they are caused by the Earth's axis pointing sometimes toward the sun and sometimes away from the sun. If we were on a roulette wheel, then the axis would always point, uh, for example, away from the sun, and there would always be summer, for instance, in Australia, all year round. So it makes more sense to think of orbital motion as dishcloth-style motion, because that is which what implies that uh, the seasons are changing. And also from the point of view of Newtonian mechanics, with inertia and so on, it does make more sense. So gravity doesn't turn things 
so to speak. It kind of slides it around with the same orientation like the dishcloth does and not doesn't behave like the roulette wheel. But in Galileo's time, the roulette wheel motion was the default assumption. Even Copernicus himself stuck with this, which was uh, kind of a missed opportunity, really. It was a kind of relic of older conceptions. You remember the crystalline spheres, planets, are embedded in solid, translucent, spherical shells. The planets, they each have one of those shells, and they fit together like the layers of an onion. And the orbital motion of the planets are just a side effect of the rotation of these entire shells in which they are embedded. So that, if you think like that, that was the uh, classical way of thinking about it. Then that indeed obviously implies roulette wheel uh, type motion rather than the dishcloth one. And so before you had Newtonian mechanics, that was indeed a quite reasonable way of conceptualizing the physics of planetary motion. We discussed it before, how that's the most... Uh, the way in which you can uh, relate circular motion in the heavens to common physical experiences. It made some sense, that point of view. Anyway, well, those, uh, that distinction is fun to think about, but it doesn't really change our point regarding the sunspots. The, the important point is the one regarding the precession of the equinoxes, which certainly disproves Galileo's argument. Now, messing around with this distinction between roulette wheel, dishcloth motion, it is more anachronistic... It's a bit of a tangent, but I include it for completeness, for intrinsic interest. In any case, uh, bringing that in certainly wouldn't save Galileo. On the contrary, it would uh, only uh, remove the entire basis for his argument uh, altogether if we allow dishcloth motion. So either way, Galileo loses, whichever way you, uh, you want to slice it. So uh, we sorted that out. Uh, now let's get back to history. It's striking that in the 1610s, when he was first studying sunspots, Galileo completely missed all of this stuff. I don't mean he missed the point about the precession of the equinoxes, which he never acknowledged at any stage, but even the very idea that sunspots can support heliocentric theory, that it can support Copernicus. That entire idea was missed by Galileo for decades. Uh, even though he was explicitly studying sunspots in, in detail at this time. And the, the whole thing just didn't occur to him. And it was his own sloppiness that cost him this discovery. And let's see how. Like I said, Galileo lacked the disposition to do painstaking scientific research, like Shiner, for example, who, who did do such things. And instead, with premature hubris, Galileo soon imagined that he had, as he said, uh, looked into and demonstrated everything that human reason could attain to regarding uh, sunspots. Those are his own bombastic words. Many years later, he was still convinced that this was the last word on the matter. As one historian uh, observes, writing regarding the recent news that Shiner would soon publish a thick folio volume of sunspots, Galileo remarked that any such book would surely be filled with irrelevancies, as there was no more to be said on the subject than he had already published in his letters on sunspots. But Galileo's arrogance proved unfounded. When Shiner's much better work on sunspots came out, Galileo realized that he had to completely reverse his earlier uh, proclamations, even though he had stated those things which uh, such hubristic confidence. With unwarranted uh, pomposity, he had claimed to offer observations and drawings of the solar spots, ones of absolute precision in their shapes as well as in their daily changes in position without a hair's breadth of error. 
So these are quotes from Galileo. According to Galileo, the sunspots were describing lines on the face of the sun. They travel across the body of the sun in parallel lines. Those are his words. In fact, I do not judge that the revolution of the spots is oblique to the plane of the ecliptic in which the earth lies. So those are quotes from Galileo. And the point here is that he's saying that every sunspot path is straight as an arrow. Just as the equation of the globe would be from every side, you looked at it, if its axis was perfectly vertical. And so that, of course, precludes this whole business about the different happy face, sad face stuff that we talked about. All of that is, you know, if the all sunspots path are always uh, ruler straight, then none of that could ever uh, enter the picture. But uh, Shiner showed that, in fact, the sun's axis does have an inclination, just over uh, 7 degrees, and uh, the paths do indeed exhibit precisely those alternating diagonal U-shapes and so on that we discussed before. So we published this result in 1630 in the folio that Galileo had mocked as bound to be superfluous, and it was from this work that Galileo now realized his error. When Galileo finally realized that inclined uh, sunspot paths spoke in favor of heliocentrism, he immediately threw all his old observations out the window. These were the observations he had called without a hair's breadth of error, if you recall. Galileo had been so proud of these observations for decades, but now they contradicted the point he wanted to make regarding heliocentrism, so he pretended that they didn't exist, his old, uh, his old observations. Galileo has a very lax relation to empirical data, as usual. Uh, one minute his observations are without a hair's breadth of error. And then the next thing you know, the facts according to Galileo have changed radically into something completely different. That is in direct contradiction with his own explicit statements just months before. But, well, that's Galileo for you. Anyway, now that he has made up his mind then about which way he was supposed to fudge the data... Galileo immediately rushed this pro-Copernican argument into print without making any new observations. This is clear from the fact that the published argument displays entire ignorance or complete neglect of the observational data. And his vague descriptions are utterly wrong and almost the exact opposite of the careful data published by Shiner. Those are quotes from Stillman Drake, Galileo's greatest admirer. Striking, isn't it? Ignorant, utterly wrong. Well, that's, those are quite harsh words, isn't it? From your greatest supporter. Actually, that is the most charitable reading of Galileo. Stillman Drake, who is always trying to save Galileo, he is driven to call Galileo ignorant in order to avoid an even greater disgrace. Namely, that Galileo, in fact, plagiarized Shine's book, and then tried to pass these things off as his own discoveries. So Galileo's defense lawyer is saving him from the charge of plagiarism by pointing out that Galileo's account has a thousand errors in it, while Shinus does not. Well, you know, if Galileo is a plagiarist, how come his book stinks and gets all the facts wrong? You know, it's some defense, isn't it? But there you have it. That's the best you can do with Galileo. Indeed, Galileo did not want to admit his debt to Shiner, of course, so he pretended that he had come upon the discovery independently. He lied that he had made, as he says, very careful observations for many, many months, and noting with consummate accuracy the paths of various uh, spots 
at different times of the year. Uh, we found the, the results to accord exactly with the predictions. In reality, says one modern scholar, the evidence is unequivocal. Galileo must have had a copy of Shiner's book in front of him as he wrote this section. But by pretending otherwise, Galileo has deliberately set out to efface Shiner from the historical record and to deny his debt to him. It is impossible to find any excuse for this behavior. Very well. Uh, why don't we stop uh, there then for this for today with those apt words from David Wooten. But there's plenty more inexcusable behavior uh, coming up. We haven't even discussed all of Galileo's shenanigans with the telescope yet. But, well, until next time then, thank you.